Warning, this podcast involves discussions of a spooky and graphic nature not suitable for children or the faint of heart. Strong language and mature content is present. Listener discretion is advised. You have been warned. Hey, Spooksters, and welcome back to another episode of Three Spooked Girls. My name is Tara, and as always, I'm joined by my lovely gal pal, Jessica. Hey! Hello, hello. And tonight, it is a true crime week here on the show, and we have another infamous serial killer for you. He is known as the Son of Sam, or his real name is David Berkowitz. That is correct. (laughs) I'm glad. (laughs) (laughs) I'm glad I could do this correctly. (laughs) Or else I would have been totally fucked. I'm like, no, his name is... I can't even come up with a name. Actually, we are um, doing an episode on The Shining. You're totally fucking off base. I don't know. I was going to say the fucking... this. Oh, oh, Aileen Warnos. That's who I was going to say. I was like, monster? I'm like, what's her real name? Her. Ah. But yeah, no, 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 no. JK. We are here to talk about Son of Sam today. But we should do one on her. We should, because there's all kinds of fun stuff. So yeah, we'll add that to our list. So yeah, if you guys want to hear that, let us know. So we're not just doing episodes you don't want to hear. You know, that helps. But yes, if you're new here, hello, welcome. There's a taste of how we run this show. Hello. Hola. Wengapo. <laughs> all the greetings. <laughs> and for some reason, I just totally thought of It's a Small World with all the different languages. You're welcome. I just got that song stuck in all your heads, including Jessica's. <laughs> So if you're new here and you're curious where to find us on social media, head to our Linktree link in the show notes. We have Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, all of that great stuff. We're also on Patreon in our time. I did two lives today. I did one for Instagram and also for our Facebook group. Updating you guys on our tiers. We kind of simplified things. If you missed that out by this point that this comes out, shit, it's been up for weeks. But if not, no big deal. So we have a one, five, and ten dollar tiers. You can, with all of those, get our bonus episodes that we do each month. Five and up, they get video content and also all kinds of extra goodies. And if you are a ten dollar patron, which I feel like this was the most exciting new feature whatever you want to call it, that they get. If you're a $10 patron, you get an episode dedicated to you. So not only do you get to pick the topic, whether it's paranormal or true crime, if you're a podcaster or you own some kind of business, whatever, we are going to highlight you and all that good stuff. So if you want to check it out, head to the show notes or patreon.com slash three spooked girls. So we'll move on to our drinks now, Jessica. Before we move on, I have a Twitter update, y'all. Oh, fuck. Tara taught me how to use Twitter. Yes. So (laughs) I have done a few Twitter moves with our Twitter account, and I feel very good about that. Good, yeah. I am a millennial who didn't know how to use Twitter. I feel good about myself today. (laughs) Good. Yeah, no. Yeah, so if you're on Twitter, we might have to start putting our names on shit because uh, it's both of us now on there. So I know. Super. Or we could just leave it as a mystery. Yes, I can just guess. I'm sure they'll be able to tell. Mm-hmm. I have one more little little thing Ooh. before <laughs> we get into these fucking drinks. It has come to my attention that apparently there's people out there that think we have an accent. <gasps> okay. <laughs> this is a trigger for fucking sure. Ugh. So Tara 
was on was being interviewed by another podcaster. Yes. And she made a comment to Tara. Oh, something, something, your accent. And Tara asked her husband, Matt, do I have an accent? Now, both of these people are East Coasters. And I know I'm going to piss a bunch of people off, but that's fine. Come at me in those in the comments, people. Tara and I are both born and raised California girls. She may have abandoned me and moved away, but true to her heart, she's a California girl. In California, we have what they call the golden standard of non-accents because when you are, no, this is true. When you go into acting, they tell you to sound neutral, which is how Californians sound is neutral. And then depending on what coasts you go to, like even like Northwesterns people like Seattle, Washington, Oregon, they kind of have one. But Californians, we don't have an accent. So it blows my mind anytime someone's like, I like your accent. I'm like, what are you smoking? I don't have an accent. (laughs) Trigger. (laughs) So the reason I bring that up is because I want to know if more people think this. So yes or no. And where you're from. Because East Coast is like totally opposite. So I can understand that. Like, I get it. Let us know. I want to know. I'm just curious. But anyway, sorry. Tangent early tonight. It's fine. (laughs) It triggers me. I'm sorry, guys. (laughs) Moving on. Enough about that. Because we'll do a whole whole fucking episode on that. (laughs) Pretty much. (laughs) Hashtag triggered. What did you decide for the drink for tonight? Well, since Son of Sam happened in New York, we are going to go with a Manhattan. Ooh. Head over to our Pinterest to find the recipe because I'm not sharing it this week. You guys got to go work for it. Oh, shit. You're getting too reliant on me just telling you how to make things. Oh, fuck. Or, you know, that and uh, it's always on Instagram, too. So you're welcome. (laughs) (laughs) It's true. Tara will tell you. Yeah, I'll tell you eventually. (laughs) Eventually. Yes. But yeah, I uh, am uh, loving this fucking the black box wine. Um, So I'm still finishing that up because in our time, Mm -hmm. I'm getting ready to head out of town soon. So I don't really want to buy a bunch of new stuff. So you guys are probably like, bitch, quit drinking the same shit. But bitch, I'm not buying new shit right before I leave to sit here for three weeks. So (laughs) it's true because then it would be like vinaigrette. Yeah. Or at least vinegar. So I'm just kind of going my rounds to finish up what's in my house right now before I leave. That's smart, though. Yeah. Yeah. But it's super good. I love it. I love it. I'm excited for you and your Mm -hmm. wine. Because you know what? Sometimes when you do that, when you like clean out your alcohol supply, you're like, oh, I do like this. Right? I know. Because like the rosé is still sitting in my fridge, too. So I'll have to finish that up. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that one's always good. But I like I like to bounce back around. So since we were, we record multiple times throughout the week, I bought a bottle of wine for Thursday. Mm-hmm. And um, my husband drank it for me. <clears throat> so, pissed about that. Oh, no. <laughs> Which is weird because he doesn't normally drink wine. So, I was like, I wonder if it's the one I just thought about that I might go buy for Thursday, even though I just said, bitch, don't buy no more. Shit. No, it's not. The, it's the blue Moscato y one. Oh, that one's good too. Cool. So, there's our drinks, guys. I'm curious what kind of drinks you guys like during the summertime, whether it's wine, mixed drinks, beer, whatever. Let us know yeah. what you guys like. I, I'm i not much of a liquor drinker unless it's like special occasions, but mixed drinks that are like super diluted with like a bunch of juice and shit, <laughs> I will drink. <laughs> so let us know. Let us know. I will say that um, I'm getting to the point in my life where hangovers are a thing now. Mm-hmm. So... 
they didn't used to be a thing. Mm-hmm. And a couple of weeks ago, we had a for my work, we had a board meeting and then afterwards they had dinner and my friend Andrew, who's on the board and is also my chiropractor, decided to make margaritas for everyone. Oh, no. And I had two and a half and I died. Oh, God. I did. I wasn't even drunk. Right. I just had a hangover. Yeah, I'm scared. Like, I don't drink liquor very often and I have to be careful because if not, like, I know I'm younger than you, but like, even still, it'll like upset my stomach. Like, I'll have some kind of hangover the next day. Who? No. So I have to be very careful. Like, I'm trying to think like the last time I had like legit liquor, I think was your wedding. That's one of the things like people talk to me about my wedding and they've actually thanked me. They're like, thank you for having an open bar. And I'm like, you're welcome. And they're like, no, you don't understand. So here's my little bit of advice for anyone getting married. Have an open bar. People love you more. (laughs) And they forgive you when you haven't written thank you cards yet because they remember you paid a lot of money for an open bar. Right? Shit. Oh, okay. Well, I think that's really all we got for now for all our Mm. tangent stuff. So if you hate the banter, hopefully you've skipped to here because here we go with the episode. (laughs) Uh, I am going to hand it over to Jessica. She is, in case you already forgot, in our 20-minute rant. Sorry, guys. We're going to talk about David Berkowitz. She's going to go into his background and the murders, and then I'll have the the fun life change he had at the very end for you guys, which, you know. Holy fuck. Weird glow up of sorts. Yes. So, Jessica, I'll let you take it away. So, we're going to talk about Son of Sam, David Richard Berkowitz, or as his birth name was, which was Richard David Falco, was born on June 1st, 1953. Um, He was born to his mother, Elizabeth Betty Broder. And she is... Okay. So, how do we talk about Betty? Betty was not the most successful person in life. She had a string of like bad relationships. She got married. It didn't last, even though she was like still married to her husband for like years after. And why she didn't change her name back because she was still fucking married. (laughs) Right. So she like and she's always kept his name. So she was married to a guy by the name of Tony Falco, who was an Italian American. And she came from an impoverished Jewish family. And they got married in 1936. They were married less than four years. And Tony up and left her ass for another woman. So they're divorced. He's moved on. She's still keeping his name. So then she meets another person by the name of Joseph Kleinman. Now, he was kind of a well, kind of mid well-to-do Jewish businessman in the area. And she started to have an affair with him. And it lasted for a long time. Well bitch gets pregnant of course so she gets pregnant and she's like joseph i'm having your kid and he's like uh no (laughs) i love the theatrics (laughs) i like telling stories what can i say no no i love it i love it i live for it okay so she's like i'm pregnant we're gonna have a baby and he's like "Mm, we're not having a baby you're going to get rid of the baby give it up for adoption and you're not giving that motherfucker my name because he was married and had kids She was his mistress. So he has standards. And Crazy Betty over here decided to name her son Richard David Falco after her first husband who left her for another woman. Betty, you need to have better self-esteem because your husband left you for someone else and then you're somebody else's mistress. So she gives birth on, we've talked about June 1st, 1953 in Brooklyn, New York. And um, within a few days, she gave the baby up for adoption. Mm -hmm. 
obviously, I don't know if she didn't want him, but she wanted Kleinman more. He did say that if you don't get rid of the baby, I will leave you. And if you give him my name, I will leave you. So little baby David goes and finds himself a new family. Well, he didn't find himself a new family. Essentially, it was like a friend of Betty's knew these people who wanted to have a baby but couldn't, and they would take him in and adopt him. So Pearl and Nathan Berkowitz of the Bronx, they were a Jewish American family, and they, I believe, owned a hardware store. It says that they were hardware retailers, but I take that as that they sold hardware. Right. And they, you know, they were in their middle, like kind of like middle age. And they didn't have kids and they really wanted a kid. So they um, they brought in David, who's at that time was Richard David, but then they reversed his name. Mm-hmm. And then they gave him their surname. So that's where his name became Richard David Berkowitz. Now, when little David was four, his adoptive parents sat him down and said, we need to tell you something. And I was watching a documentary and he's like, I remember this very vividly. They told him, you're adopted at four, which is kind of really young to tell a kid, like, you're adopted. <laughs> right. I Like, they can't even wrap their head around that. I remember watching something on this, too, and it just, like, it just broke my heart. Right? It's so sad. So they tell him, little David, you're adopted. And because, like, a child psychologist or a social worker advised them to do this they told him that his birth mother died during childbirth and that his birth father with the loss of the mother could not raise the child and gave him up for adoption but they loved him so much that they took him home i get the last part that we loved you so much we took you home however the first two statements are fucking traumatizing right and i mean I'm sure you're going to get into what his reaction to this was. Mm-hmm. At that age, like, it's it's totally fucking understandable. Oh, yeah. I just, I'm like, why the fuck would you tell a four-year-old this? I feel like even a teenager, that would still mess them up because you think, like, you know, what you're about to say. Um, <laughs> sorry. <laughs> well, I'll just say it so that we can. Yes, go ahead. <laughs> yeah, so we can talk about it. <laughs> so essentially, David instantly thought to himself, I fucking killed my mother. Mm-hmm. I'm the reason she's dead. If she hadn't given birth to me, she'd have been alive, which... Is a logical thing for a four-year-old to think because little kids are taught everything is black and white. It's yes or no, right or wrong, the truth or a lie. Like, they don't know about this gray area that we as adults live in a lot. So this was, like, for his adoptive parents, this was a gray area. We're telling him the truth that he's adopted, but it's a lie because his birth mother is still alive. His birth father is out there. So David internalizes this. And he starts acting out. He starts, you know, being a little problem child. It's said that he has above average intelligence, which and he just got bored really fast of learning and just started becoming troublesome in school. So basically, it's a very common theme that sociopathic serial killers are above average intelligence and get bored. He later says that he had ADD really bad. Right. And during that time, like it wasn't a thing to treat it. Right. And how you would treat it was that you would just tell the parents that he was ill-behaved and probably beat it out of him. Right. However, the school that he went to, his teacher, like, because everyone was noticing that he wasn't really participating. He was getting really frustrated. He would, like, get into little petty fights, you know, start fires, you know, your traditional starter kit for a serial killer. 
Typical. Right. So (laughs) (laughs) I think because the fact that his like he was starting fires, like someone was like, you need to take him to see a psychotherapist. And that's what they did. His adoptive parents. And I think a lot of it had to do that they were older. Mm -hmm. They probably weren't like, like, oh, God, I've raised this child like forever. And I don't know what to do. But they had more of like a head on their shoulders. Right. Because they were in their 40s when they got him. Right. Mm-hmm. If I remember right, mm-hmm. yeah, which was for that time period, like super old to have a kid. Oh yeah, so I mean, it made sense that they they adopted him. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think one of the reasons they wanted to tell him that he was adopted is that everyone knew. So eventually, someone could have slipped him in, like, "Hey, you adopted." Right. So it's like they just kind of beat the punch to that one. Right. So they started taking him to essentially a therapist and he was just like, he kind of went a few times and he didn't really care. It was like a way he got out of school like twice a week or something like that. And in the summer he got to go a long period of time and he just really hated it, but he just did it because it made his mom happy. Well, unfortunately, David was going to encounter another sorrow really quickly. At the age of 14, his adopted mother died of breast cancer. Mm. And it's sadder because he'd had a fight with his mom, you know, like typical teenage stuff. And you know how like some teenagers get to that age who, and I mean, I did it to my parents and you're like, I hate you. Mm-hmm. Well, he yelled something like that. Like, I hate you. I don't ever want to see you again. Something like that. And then his mom got sick at dinner and never came home because oh. she had to go in the hospital because they found out she had aggressive stage four cancer. Shit. Right. So I feel like, Think about it from a 14-year-old's perspective, drink. It's probably like this. For 10 years, you've believed that you killed your birth mom. And now you've said something like, I hate you. I don't ever want to see you again. And then your mom never comes home. Right. So it's guilt of both your moms. Right. And then he and his father, his adoptive father, they weren't really close because I think he spent a lot of time with his mom and his dad worked. It was that like that leave it to beaver family. But, you know, the Bronx edition, (laughs) which I like when he talks about the Bronx, he talks about like growing up, like where he was, how he could see like the whole of the neighborhood. Mm -hmm. And so he like knew everything that was going on because he could see all of the neighborhood. Gotcha. So he ended up really not getting along with his adoptive father and his adopted father eventually remarries and he moves to Florida with her. And David's just like, I don't like this. And I think there's been a lot of negative impact in his life around women. Mm -hmm. He lost his birth mom. He thinks he's killed her. He's probably got some guilt because he didn't really get to make amends with his birth mom or his adoptive mom. So at the age of 17, he enlists and joins the army and goes to Korea. He did well. He was dishonorably discharged in 1974. And this is the time where he comes back and he's trying to figure out what to do with his life. So he starts going to college and all this stuff. And then he kind of finds himself in this like weird group of adoptive kids. So he's in this group and he's talking about how like my birth mom died. He's like, I want to find my birth father. And they're like, why don't you find your birth mom? And they're like, oh, well, my birth mom died. And he's they're all like, yeah, that's what they tell everyone. Your birth mom is probably alive. Oh, shit. Right. And he's like, what the fuck? Mm-hmm. He calls his birth dad. He calls Nathan and he's like, dude, what the fuck? Where's my dad? Where's my birth mom? And Nathan ends up saying, like, look, your birth mom is alive. This is her information. And so he looks her up. This is kind of where I think a lot of shit just flips in his brain because he's now 22 
And essentially, everyone in his life has lied to him. They lied to him about lies. So he's just like, what the fuck do I do? And he meets his mom and he finds out he has a half sister who's older than him, which is kind of like one of those things like she kept her. Why didn't she keep me? Like, why did she put me up for adoption? And essentially, (laughs) he's out there searching for something greater. And he comes across this group of individuals at college that they're a satanic cult. Mm hmm. (laughs) <laughs> like that's the only way to say it. Like, exactly who you're gonna talk about because i went down the rabbit hole <laughs> right they're a satanic cult they like did the whole chanting in the woods like animal sacrifice so they basically they decide that you know we need to escalate this shit no more dead animals we need to kill people <sighs> yep mind you satanic cult mm-hmm. very impressionable very lonely person This is a big theme in the 60s and 70s. Right? Very impressionable. Yes. And mind you, he's also doing drugs. Like, it's like kind of like how the Manson family did, where it's like they're all doing LSD Mm -hmm. and, you know, chanting to demonic beings and and whatnot. Shit, he... He even admitted to um, doing LSD while he was in the army. It was everywhere back then. You know, it was just so normal. Like, it's crazy. It's kind of like how pot is today. But pot isn't as crazy. And, no. And mind. I mean, it's slightly mind altering because you get high. But they're different ends of the spectrum. <laughs> and this is where people are going <laughs> to. Yeah, people are going to blow me up. Pot is too a narcotic. <laughs> just calm down, people. Just, <laughs> it's not in California. Anyway. Flash forward to December of 1975, Mr. Berkowitz is walking around and he has himself a hunting knife and he comes across two teenage girls in which he attacks, but one gets away and is never identified. And the other one, her name is Michelle Forum, and she was injured and had to be hospitalized. Though Berkowitz was not suspected of the crimes, soon after he relocated his apartment from, like, to Yonkers, New York, because this is, was closer to his satanic cult. And then he takes himself a road trip to his buddy in Texas. And he convinces his friend in Texas that he needs a gun to protect himself on the way home. This is bullshit. Mm -hmm. He does not need this. It totes bullshit. His buddy helps him get a gun. And this is the 44 caliber bulldog revolver that he ends up getting and and uses. Because when he was attacking Michelle for him, like too much was happening. Like she was wearing a a thick coat and like she could struggle and he realized he had to be like fucking close to her Mm -hmm. so he was like you know what no i'm gonna get myself a gun so then what he does is this is what the son of sam would do he would drive around until he kind of found someone parked in like a couple people parked in the car particularly brunettes with long dark hair we fucked great once again (laughs) Gonna cut all this off and die a blonde. <laughs> and so on July 29th, 1976, he was driving down the street and found Donna, and I'm gonna probably say these names wrong, Laura. She was 18, and Jody Valati. I apologize. I'm not good at saying names. And they were sitting in Jody's car. It was a Oldsmobile and they were talking about their evening and just kind of like you know girls do like you chat 
Right. You know, sitting in a car and they were talking and he drove around the block, parked like a couple blocks, and then he circled the car like a fucking animal who was looking for prey. Or like a fucking vulture. Jesus. Right. But like, you know how like you see like in like animal, the animal world, how they're like kind of at a distant circle. Mm hmm. That's what he was doing. And he was getting closer each time. Ugh. And essentially what happened is Donna um, went to open her door and noticed a guy approaching quickly. And she was like, what's this or what's going on? Or like, now what is this? And he shot her and he essentially like crouched down, braced himself and then shot. And then he ended up killing Donna and um, he shot Jody in the thigh and then he shot again, but missed both of them. And then he turned and just walked away. Mm. So as Jody is like in the car, like she doesn't know what to do. So she starts like honking really hard. And Donna's dad comes out, which is so sad because he basically comes out to find his daughter has died. Yeah. So here's the other thing about the son of Sam descriptions. So these all go on. They all change because he was smart. He came up behind people and he did it at night. So they were unsuspecting. So they described him as 5'9", and he weighed about 160 pounds, that he had short, dark hair with, like, the mod style, so, like, that kind of, like, wavy hair. Mm-hmm. And then Donna's dad, who obviously they lived in the neighborhood, said they had seen a familiar man sitting in a yellow compact car parked nearby. Neighbors gave corroborating reports to the police that they had seen the unfamiliar yellow compact car had been cruising the area for hours before the shooting. So that's what he did. And so essentially this kind of like freaked everyone in New York out because they were like, what the fuck? Right. And then when it happened again in October of 1976, people were like, holy damn, like this is really happening and kind of in the same area. But this time a guy was shot. Hmm. His name was Carl De Niro and he was with Rosemary Keenan. But it said that Carl had long hair. So... I don't think that David really saw his face. I think he just saw someone with long, dark hair and was like, oh, perfect. Mm -hmm. So he ended up shooting both of them. They, I believe they both lived. I think so. Yeah. Carl ended up with a plate in his head. And again, they see him. They know it's like the same caliber gun. Mm -hmm. People are starting to freak out because they're like, where are we safe in New York? We can't go out by ourselves. And then you flash forward into November. Donna DeMessi. And um, Joanne Lamino. Donna is 16 while Joanne is 18. And they were walking home from a movie theater. And they noticed that a man in military fatigues walked up. He seemed to be in his early 20s. And he began to ask for directions. In a high-pitched voice, he asked, can you tell me how to get to it? Then he quickly produced a revolver. He shot each one of the victims once. As they fell to the ground injured, he fired several more times, striking um, the apartment building behind them before running away. A neighbor heard the gunshots and rushed out to help and saw a blonde man rush by them, gripping a pistol with his left hands. Damasi had been shot in the neck, but the wound was not life-threatening. But Joanne was actually became a paraplegic because she got shot in her spine. Hmm. That's so sad. Like, these were young girls. That is sad. But, like, if you hear the stories, like, every time they talk about him, he looks different, which is a theory later on. Hmm. So the next one happened in January of 1977. Christine Froud and her fiance, John Dell, were sitting in his car in Queens. 
They were preparing to drive to a dance hall after seeing the movie Rocky. And they heard three gunshots and they hit their car and they panicked and drove off. He had like superficial injuries, whereas Christine was shot twice, but and then died several hours later, which is so sad because they were engaged. Yeah. So his last victim's name was Virginia, and she was shot and killed on March 8th, 1977. Oh, it's Sophie's birthday. Mm-hmm. At Columbia University, where she was a student. She was 19 years old, and she was walking home. And this is kind of, I would say, this is the last shooting before he really came out as son of Sam. I should say that. It's not his last victim. Mm-hmm. And as she was walking home from school, a man walked up to her and she saw the gun and she put her books up in front of her face and he shot and killed her through them. Oh, so sad. Mm-hmm. So this is like people have started to freak the fuck out because they're like, what the hell do we do? Like girls aren't safe with going to school. They're not safe sitting in their cars in front of their houses. They're not safe with their fiancés. Like what the hell? And this is kind of where it takes an interesting turn. So that happened in March. And in April, there was another couple and their names was Alexander and Valentina. And um, they were sitting in valentina's car near her home in the bronx which let's be honest we've we've discussed this you shouldn't do it and it wasn't like the city wasn't in a panic like everyone was talking about it Mm -hmm. like every documentary was like and 16 million people were held in fear (laughs) yeah and then i felt like in all the stuff i watched like and all the discos closed (laughs) right it was like everyone was so sad it's like i'm sorry (laughs) right So they were sitting in the car and their home in the Bronx was just a few, like it was like four fucking blocks from the first shooting. And they were shot and Valentina died on scene, whereas Alexander died in the hospital several hours later. But this was different because this was when he left the letter from Son of Sam. And it was very, like, it was very depicting. And I'm not going to read it on here, but we'll put it up for you on our socials because it's, it's very, um... It's very sad and demented. So he and so basically what he did is he walked up, he walked up to this car, dropped the letter and shot. And this is where he was named son of Sam because he was basically saying um this is where like the occult part comes in because he was saying that he was worshiping a demon named Sam. I can't remember. But he was essentially like channeling some demon and then he kind of started writing letters and then he wrote a columnist letter. So we'll make sure we put all the letters up on socials for you because he essentially kind of does what the Zodiac Killer does, which is taunt the press. Like, I'm the son of Sam. Come find me. That kind of stuff. And so people started looking for him. And then people were kind of like freaking out because the anniversary of the first murder was coming up. So people assumed he was going to do something crazy. And then he did nothing. So that was a little bit of a letdown. Mm -hmm. Essentially, he was saying that he was a paranoid schizophrenic and that he was demonically possessed, which is super fun. (laughs) (laughs) So he has a few more shootings. I'm not going to go into detail about them. He had essentially two more shootings. It was Sal and Judy, and that happened in Bayside, Queens. And then he had Stacy and Robert. So he'd kind of moved on to couples, it seems. And then he got caught. In a weird, random way by chance. Yes. (laughs) Right. Right. So he has committed all these crimes. And now he is, I don't know. I don't know if he was preparing to do more, what he really was 
at the time, we don't ever have confirmation of that. But one of his neighbors got a parking ticket because they were parked near a fire hydrant. Moments after the traffic police left, a young man walked past her in the area and he seemed to study her with interest. And this is the her name was Miss Davis. She ran home and then she heard shots fired behind her, which, you know, like, let's be honest, David, like, that's really stupid. But they basically found him because he had a four-door yellow, like, Ford Galaxy, which was, like, a small compact car. Mm -hmm. And um, on August 9th, 1977, NYPD detective James Justitz phoned Yonkers police and asked them to schedule an interview with David Berkowitz. And he kind of was just like, okay, which is very stupid. It's like, why would you agree to that? I don't know. His whole, like, reaction to all of it when he got caught was just weird. (laughs) Right. So essentially what happens is they started an investigation and he kind of just gave himself the fuck up. Mm -hmm. They found the gun and everything like that. And the detective was like, now that I've got you, who have I got? And he's like, you know, the man was smiling at the detective. And then he wrote, no, I don't. The detective's like, I don't know. The man turned his head and said, I am Sam. You're Sam? Sam who? Sam. David Berkowitz. So essentially then he's being interviewed and it only took like 30 minutes of interrogation. And the dude was like, so here's the thing. My neighbor's dog barked incessantly. And when it was barking, it was telling me all these like crazy things And um, it demanded that I kill and give it the blood of pretty girls. And he said that Sam, which was the name of the neighbor who had the dog, because in real life, his neighbor, Sam Carr, had a dog that barked all the time. And actually, David tried to shoot it once. Mm -hmm. So he said, quote unquote, that the demon dog told him to do it. And that's what he was doing. And I think a lot of that was like, I'm trying to, you know, get off on the insanity at this point. I have some stuff he says, like in more current times about this in a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Um, Because homeboy just doesn't go to prison and go away. Mm -hmm. We got some changes coming. He a glow up for sure. Yeah. So basically, he was trying to say, I'm not mentally capable of standing trial. But they did three separate mental health evaluations. And they were all like, no, bitch, you can stand trial. So guess what? You got to go stand trial. His lawyer was like, okay, you're going to enter a plea of not guilty. But David was like, no, I did it. So I'm going to plead guilty to all the shootings. So like two weeks later, they had a sentencing. People were pretty upset about it. At his sentencing, um, David Berkowitz caused an uproar when he attempted to jump out of the window of the seventh floor courtroom. After he was restrained, he repeatedly chanted, Stacy was a whore and shouted, I'd kill her again. I'd kill them all again. So I think a lot of this had to do with the fact that he was trying to be like, I'm crazy. You're not crazy, dude. You pled guilty. So on June 12th, 1978, Berkowitz was sentenced to 25 years to life for each murder. um, And it was to be served consecutively, not like at the same time. Okay, so that is all I have. Sorry, guys, I have been chatting the whole time. We need to throw (laughs) it over to Tara, who is going to give you the life of David Berkowitz since July 12th of 1970. Oh, that was my mom's birthday. Um, 1978. Because this motherfucker does not go away. Today's show is brought to you by Audible. Audible is offering our spooksters a free audiobook with a 30-day trial membership. 
Just go to audibletrial.com slash three spooked girls and browse the unmatched selection of audio programs. Download a title free and start listening. It's that easy. Go to audible.com slash three spooked girls and get started today. Why Audible? Audible content includes an unmatched selection of audiobooks, original audio shows, news, comedy, and more from the leading audiobook publishers, broadcasters, and entertainers. Do you know why I'm super excited about this? Like, why we got this partnership? It's honestly, like, the perfect timing. Yeah? Yeah, because, like, since I'm getting ready to go on my trip Mm -hmm. over to California, like, next week, I went and signed up already, and I downloaded my book so I can listen to it on the plane since I'm a, like, religious podcast listener, and I know I'm caught up, so I have nothing else to listen to. Oh, it's true. That's actually very smart, because I'm sitting over here, like, I have a, like, five-hour plane ride to Tulsa when I go, so that's brilliant. Right? Yeah, and I have been keeping an eye on this, like, thriller, kind of, like, true crime-inspired book that's by an author I really like. It's called Say You're Sorry. It's by Melinda Lee, and they actually had it on there, and you can pick, like, whatever titles you want, so that's what I went and chose for my free book, and normally, you know, it's... Twenty three ninety nine, and I got it for free because I used our URL on that. Awesome. I'm going to check it out. So I'm going to go there right now. So the book that I've been really wanting to read is Where the Crawdads Sing by Delia Owens. Because if you know me, I love Reese Witherspoon. And I love the fact that she has this book club. And I'm so excited about it. And it's her top one. So oh, there it is. It's available free with the trial. Yeah, I'm going to do that. Because otherwise, I'd be spending like twenty four fifty. Yeah, heck yeah. I know we were talking about that on our other episodes. So that's like perfect. So yeah, you guys, you can pick any book. You don't have to pick just like the books we're recommending. You can get anything. They have so many different titles you guys can choose from. So to download your free audiobook today, just go to audibletrial.com slash three spooked girls. Again, that's audibletrial.com slash three spooked girls for your free audiobook. No, he uh, he had some interesting stuff. Yeah, so he's in prison, of course. And the first 10 years, you know, it's just like, whatever. He's a problem child. He's being fucking a dick and all of that great stuff. Well, we're going to jump to the 80s. And this is where stuff kind of takes a turn and you're just like, what the actual fuck? So, okay. Let me preface with this. So there is on YouTube, and I will link it, and this is my reminder for future Tara to link it. There is a nine-part interview with David from 2016, well, 2015 technically, but posted in 2016, kind of just explaining everything. And of course, this second part of his journey is what I concentrated on. I want to hone in on this dog real quick before I jump in with the rest of his shit. Okie dokie. So the son of Sam name, now that he's like of sound fucking mind, maybe, depend. I don't know. The LSD has worn yes, off. Yes, there's no drugs and shit, and he's probably got like, you know, medication for all the other stuff. Mm-hmm. The son of Sam actually didn't even come from the neighbor. It came from this evil demon entity that he thought he was communicating with and that had, you know, possessed him and all that crap. The way the name sounds is Samhain. But it's spelled like Sam Hain. So it's S-A-M-H-A-I-N. So that's where he got Son of Sam. Oh. Yes, this was this entity that he was like communicating with and worshiping and all of that. And that's where that came from. And now with the dog, the media and movies and books and everything kind of ran with this part of the rumors kind of wildly. He says that like 
the dog didn't tell him. The demon wasn't possessing the dog to tell him anything. He's like, but in my mind at that time, Samhain was telling me what to do, but the dog was just annoying as shit. The dog wasn't fucking doing anything. And then he tried to like explain this to the papers in like this kind of roundabout way. Like he didn't want to full on be like, I talk to demons. But he's like, (laughs) you know, either way, it's just, it's fucking insane. And then his birth mother went to like, Better Homes and Garden or some some magazine like that and like did this whole fucking thing. <laughs> that did not help. So he's like, no, the dog was fucking annoying. Everybody had annoying ass dogs. That didn't have anything to do with the crimes. Like that's separate. Like there was a whole like 10 minute thing on that. Like, no. Yeah, he he talked about how annoying the dog was and how it barked yes. incessantly. Yes. And that's what I said earlier. He like ended up shooting the dog in the leg. He didn't kill it. Right. Yeah. No. So now if you're unaware David is a completely different person versus when he originally was committing these crimes. Like I said, we're going to jump to about 10 years into his sentencing. So I believe it was about 1987-ish. He met this man named Rick, and it was one of those things that was just really odd because, you know, inmates... They get their time like outside and in the yard and all of Mm -hmm. that stuff to exercise, whatnot. Well, this guy came up to him one day and he started talking to him. And in prison, that's not a thing. So David was like, what the fuck? Like, what does this guy want? And the guy's like, I'm familiar with your case. And I just wanted to tell you that Jesus does love you. He does forgive you. He can forgive you. David's just kind of like, okay, dude, cool story. I've fucking murdered lots of people. There's no, if there's a God, there's no fucking way he's going to forgive me for this shit. Sorry. No. Rick just kind of presses on. He's like, he does. Like, he's not going to be like, oh my God, do this now. Like, you know, super pushing on. But he's like, you know what? Let's just be friends. When we meet up at the yard, let's just work out together. Go on our walk. Let's be besties. Yes. And so David's like, okay, you know, why not? So they actually become friends about a month or so after they, you know, they've been hanging out and whatnot. Rick gives to him basically a like a New Testament Bible that has like Psalms in it and everything. And he's like, look, I know by like birth and everything you're Jewish and you got your other stuff, the demon shit. But I really think you should read this. (laughs) You got your demon shit. (laughs) Yeah, (laughs) your demon shit. But I really feel like you should read this. And so he gave it to him. David loves to read. So he's like, whatever. It's just something else to read. Right. So he read it and he started reading Psalms and everything. And because the way the prison was set, is set up or I don't was is I, I don't know. I think he's still in the same one. Um, He you know, everyone has their own cell. Mm-hmm. So he's just reading at night with his little lamp and whatnot. And he's reading Psalms 34. And he said he's reading this. And when he's while he's reading this passage, that this is when he's like, I just was overcome with emotion and I began to cry. I guess on the verse, it was the sixth verse, it says, this poor man cried and the Lord heard him and saved him from all his troubles. So that just really spoke to him for, you know, obvious reasons, because he's like, I've done all this fucked up shit. Like, I'm fucked. I'm in prison. I'm going to go to hell. Mm -hmm. So he said that he gets down off his bed. He turns his light off first because he doesn't want people to know he's like crying, you know, Mm -hmm. and then he gets down off his bed and he just sits there and he's like praying and just like, I don't know, I guess like confessing his sins and everything like he's talking to in his words. He said he's talking to God. Right. And this goes on for about 20 to 30 minutes. And then he's like, you know, and then I was done. He's like, and then I went to bed. Mm hmm. 
And the next morning he wakes up and he's like, I just felt like a weight was lifted off me. I just felt totally different. You know, just like this epiphany. And so the next time he went to the yard, he found Rick and he was like, hey, I did what you said I should do. And blah, 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 blah. (laughs) I love Rick's reaction was like, wait, what? Yeah, he was like shocked. He's like, what? You did what? And he was just like, you know, I mean, if you've went to church or you're like, you know, we both have like and we're both familiar. Mm -hmm. So this reaction is like how people react. You know, he's extremely happy. David said he was like jumping up and down and he was like embarrassed. He's like, dude, dude, calm, calm down. Calm the fuck down. (laughs) (laughs) You need to calm down. People are watching. We are in prison. Yeah. He's like, chill, chill, dude. Like, shit. But, you know, the guy was like, that's great. You know, you may not understand it now, but you will get it one day. You will get what you've done. And it's going to be awesome for your life. Like, I don't know how else to really describe it. Mm -hmm. So after that, uh, him and Rick, you know, they started going to like the chapel because they have one there and all of that stuff. And then like one day he says like he was going to look for him. And then Rick had been transferred out to a lower like security facility because the guy was only doing like a 10 year sentence. So he was like almost done. Yeah. So he's transitioning. And he said uh, as of 2016, I don't know if anything happened after this, but he said he'd, he'd never seen him again after that. Right. Hopefully Rick got out and has rehabilitated mm-hmm. himself and understands that he kind of changed a person's life. Oh, yeah, because how he described how David describes it is like Rick was like how David is today, like very like he just changed for the better, like he converted and all of that stuff. What's crazy is come back up to more modern day. David is like a huge, I guess, influence and staple with his testimony as far as like ministry goes in the Christian community for like other inmates and troubled people and kids and stuff like that. It's kind of insane. Like he's written articles. He's written passages. He's done all kinds of stuff from prison. He has a website. Yeah. Oh, I was getting to that. He has a <laughs> website. Um, And on his website, he has all kinds of stuff. So like he has, you know, the welcome page, all of that stuff. He has the his written apology for, you know, the crimes he has committed. Mm-hmm. He's written out his testimony and he's got that in like all kinds of languages. So it's like this. I don't know if you're interested in this kind of stuff. Like it's a nice read. I'll say that. Yeah. They have his, he has his life story in his own words. There's some video interviews that are linked there. A couple other written interviews. And he's actually kind of taken his religion as his new identity. And he's tried to identify himself not as son of Sam anymore, but as son of hope. And that's kind of what his ministry is titled as basically. Right. Which is kind of it's like weird because it's like. Okay. Mm-hmm. Right. But hey, embrace it, I guess. Right. Oh, totally embrace it. He has a uh, online journal, so like a blog basically that he writes in, he writes a entry in each month, and this actually started back in 2005. So he's been doing this for 14 years. I'm just very like curious, like does he post it or does someone post it for him? I mean, I know in some prisons like they get internet access, so there's a chance, but he does have a typewriter that he uses still. So if he doesn't, he he has people that run his website. He could mail it to them. Oh, it's true. I was gonna say that like when I listened to the Chris Watts thing, um, like the prison that he's at has internet, but mm-hmm. they just don't they have all social medias disabled. Right. Yeah. So I guess it depends. But basically, they treat it like a nonprofit. So they have ways like you can donate and stuff like that. But of course, like none of the money goes to him or like anybody that's doing the website. It goes to wherever, whatever organizations they want. Right. Because of the Son of Sam law. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) 
<laughs> where David essentially, because he, I think, was selling himself as an interview mm-hmm. early on to make money, they, they New York made yeah. a law. <laughs> yeah, they were like, uh, no, you can't make money off of this. <laughs> right. And with this, there's all kinds of links and stuff. And then, like, if you're someone, I guess, troubled or, like, you're someone who's, like, you're wanting to become a Christian, whatever, they have links, like, all kinds of stuff for you here. It's just, it's so fascinating to me. Like, Mm -hmm. when you listen to him, like, he sounds like a a guy just getting up at church telling his testimony. Like, I was a bad person, now I'm not. And you're Mm -hmm. like, oh, but you're a murderer. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Because I mean, both of us having religion in our backgrounds, like we've heard plenty of fucking testimonies. Mm -hmm. So like this is just like the ultimate. But yeah, it's a little different because it's and it's like something Tara and I've talked about. Because he's still in prison. He's still in prison and he's like okay with it now. Yeah. Actually, um, until 2016, he didn't even bother going to his parole hearings because right. he's like, I deserve to be in here. I did this. And he helps with like, you know, he's the chaplain assistant and then he helps with a couple other uh, areas in the prison and it'll already have passed when this goes up. But in May of this year, so like right now for us, he has his next parole hearing because it's every two years. He did have his last one, though, in 2016, and he actually went to that. And the letter here is on his website. It's not It's not super long. Um, I'll read it real quick to you guys. It's his transcript that he wrote. And then also, like, there's a little – I'll skip the ex- excerpt before because there's, like, a list of six reasons why he was going to come. So you can kind of go read that. But this is the letter to the parole board. And then also, spoiler alert, he was denied parole this time around. Well, I mean, he's serving six consecutive life, so. Yeah, I mean, it's not surprising, but, you know. Okay, so from 2016, it was dated May 17th of 2016. So the letter to the parole board. Thank you for allowing me the opportunity to present this letter to you and to speak on this matter. Since my arrival at Sullivan Correctional Facility some 28 plus years ago, I believe that in the course of time, I have been a help to both the facility staff and inmates. For example, I was trained as an inmate program aide and worked as something of a peer counselor for those who were housed in E. North's intermediate care program for various mental health and psychiatric reasons. I lived in the prison's general population, but worked at the 64-man ICP unit on weekdays, where I helped care for these men. In addition, I have spent time serving as the sensorial disabled unit where offenders who have varying degrees of visual impairment need daily assistance. I was also employed as the chaplain's assistant and clerk, and for many years, I helped oversee the worship services and Bible studies. Some of my responsibilities include coordinating the services, setting up the chapel for various events, doing paperwork, and welcoming the civilian volunteers who came into the chapel. The chaplaincy and correctional staff had no qualms allowing me to help watch over the men and women who regularly came in to minister to the inmates. In all the years I was housed at Sullivan, there was never a serious problem with volunteers. Clearly, the staff never viewed me as a risk or a threat, nor a potential security problem. Had they done so, obviously, I would have never had been permitted to function in this capacity. I believe that throughout the years spent at Sullivan Correctional Facility, I was able, with God's help, to do many good and beneficial things, both for my fellow offenders and for the staff as well. As a Christian caregiver, I have canceled and prayed with countless men, some who have lost a loved one or were despairing over the news of a very sick family member, while others were despondent at having lost contact with someone who they were once close to. I made sure I was available to help anyone who requested prayer or advice. 
I tried to be there for those who were depressed. In my free time, I would write letters and messages with spiritual themes, which I believe have provided hope and inspiration to many people from all walks of life. I have written extensively on such subjects as forgiveness, redemption, and persevering under difficult circumstances, as well as the need to discourage gun violence. Not that any of this means anything overall, but I hope it does show that the members on the parole board that I have devoted my life to doing good, and that the staff at the Sullivan Correctional Facility consider me to be trustworthy, dependable, and respectful. For this, I am most thankful. I especially thank God for changing my life and making all of this possible. I likewise hope to continue to do good in the future, even if I have to take my last dying breath behind prison walls. I want to continue to be something of a role model for my fellow inmates, as well as a source of hope and inspiration to whomever I can. Thank you. Respectfully, David Berkowitz. And then, the, again, the date was May 17th of 2016. Ooh. Yeah. I wanted to read that because I felt like it really illustrated like all of the things he's done and what better way to present that here than his own words. It's true. So it's just like, it's crazy. And I know some people are like, oh, this is bullshit. Like, this is just another way for him to fucking get any attention or like swing his story to like justify what he's done. But I watched multiple interviews with him and I feel like this is genuine. Like, that's who he just, is. this is true who he is. Cause I mean, this started back in the 80s. So like, he's been. If this was an act, this is a long fucking act, like 30 fucking years old. And someone would have already outed him. Definitely. Someone would have come out and been like, no, that's not how he is when the cameras are off. Because I guarantee you people want their 15 minutes of fame. I think when you watch videos like of him, like from around the time he was arrested, and they're, they're not a lot. It's just more like clips of him. You get the sense like, okay, that's a serial killer. And then when you watch him now, you're like, are you someone's uncle? Right. Are you my neighbor? Like, right. It's like two different people. Like, he's so like the thing that Tara like sent said to me in researching this, it hit me. It was spot on is he's so normal. Mm -hmm. And he's not like the Ted Bundy at the end of it where like you're hearing him and you're freaked out because Mm -mm. you're like, oh, my God. But when you hear him talk, you want to listen to what David said, because regardless whether you believe in Christianity or whatever you believe in, he's spreading a good message, which is that you need to own what you do. Mm -hmm. And if you do something this horrific, you need to stand up and say, like, I need to pay for this. Right. And I think the other thing he's saying is that you're never too far gone. Right. He's giving hope to people. So, Mm -hmm. yeah. And I mean, I I honestly think that, you know, it's very tragic that those six people lost their lives and that he wounded seven people and that those people will never be whole again, ever. But I think he gives people out there who might be going down a path that could lead to where he is. It kind of gives people like, wait a second, I don't have to be this person. Right. Yeah, I completely agree. And I know, like, he said he was like, if there's any any way I ever got out, he's like, I would just continue my ministry. Like, that's what he wants to do. So he's like, I can do that out in the free world because that'd be fantastic. He's like, or I can just do it from here. Like, it is what it is. I don't agree that he should ever be free. I don't either. I think that and I think he knows that I think he knows that there's Mm -hmm. like a deep down inside like, yeah, there's hope that maybe one day he's done enough good that people would let him go maybe when he's older. Yeah, because he's still like in his what 60s. Yeah, he's he's relatively young still. But like maybe if he was in his 80s, you know, Mm -hmm. like, I mean, at that point, he's pretty harmless. But like at 60 something, he could still like at this point, he's like, what, 66, 66. Yeah. Yeah, like 
his 66th birthday is from where we're recording is just a couple weeks away. But if you're listening to this, he just had mm-hmm. it. That's still really young. People in their 60s, like, still work. Yeah. People in their 60s are still, like, running marathons. So I don't think that he, I don't think he should be out and tempted. Like, but I think if there was anyone who could ever be re, like, be that far gone and come back and then be, like, rehabilitated, um, it would be him. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't want him out because I think that, you know, he admitted to killing those people and he should spend the rest of his life in prison. But I mean, if you had to pick one, we released pick him (laughs) right no totally agree but yeah that i think is gonna conclude what we had on son of sam david berkowitz Mm -hmm. it was definitely an interesting and a lot different than other serial killers we've covered Mm -hmm. so it was cool to do so we hope you guys enjoyed it um if you have any recommendations feel free to you know let us know as always we're always happy to do that and then of course Listener stories, we keep getting tons of awesome ones in. You're welcome to send those as well. Even if you sent one before, we've read it and you're like, oh, I don't want to be annoying. No, be annoying. Send it. Please. We don't think you're annoying. No. And that's like, I was going to say that. We don't think you're annoying. But we want the stories because that's the whole point of the listener experience that mm-hmm. you're, we want to hear what you've experienced. You've heard our stories and um, we want to hear yours. Yeah. So, yeah, um, for those, just our emails, the easiest, honestly. Mm-hmm. That's just three spookgirls at gmail.com. And yeah, that was really all we had for today. So, we are going to go ahead and sign off. Bye. Have a good day, guys. Bye. Hey there, I'm Chasne. And I'm Sandy. And, and we, we are, are the, the Woods. Woods. A weekly podcast where we discuss anything spooky, unexplainable, and just plain bizarre. So please, come take a walk with us, because you never know what you're going to find in the woods. Hi, I'm Angela Lovell. I'm a psychic, an empath, indigo child, and a witch. And my name is Ryan Singer. I'm a stand-up comedian, paranormal investigator, and an empath. And our podcast is called This Is Where the Magic Happens. Yeah, we walk you through the paranormal, witchcraft, how to get in touch with your spirit guides, how to astral project, and be the most magical you you can be. And there's a lot of cat talk. A lot of cats. Uh, But most of all, we want you to know this This shit shit is is real. real.